The Arguments of Celsus Against the Christians by Celsus This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Quote, The Christians are accustomed to have private assemblies which are forbidden by the law, for of assemblies some are public, and these are conformable to the law of the land, but others are secret, and these are such as are hostile to the laws, among which are the love-feasts of the Christians. Men who irrationally assent to anything resemble those who are delighted with jugglers and enchanters, etc. For as most of these are depraved characters who deceive the vulgar and persuade them to assent to whatever they please, this also takes place with the Christians. Some of these are not willing either to give or receive a reason for what they believe, but are accustomed to say, Do not investigate, but believe. Your faith will save you. For the wisdom of the world is bad, but folly is good. The world, according to Moses, was created at a certain time, and has from its commencement existed for a period far short of ten thousand years. The world, however, is without a beginning in consequence of which there have been from all eternity many conflagrations and many deluges, among the latter of which the most recent is that of Deucalion. Goatherds and shepherds among the Jews, following Moses as their leader, and being allured by rustic deceptions, conceived that there is only one God. These goatherds and shepherds were of opinion that there is one God, whether they delight to call him the Most High, or Adonai, or Celestial, or Sabaoth, or to celebrate by any other name the fabricator of this world. For they knew nothing further. For it is of no consequence whether the God who is above all things is denominated after the accustomed manner of the Greeks, Jupiter, or is called by any other name, such as that which is given to him by the Indians or Egyptians. End quote. Celsus, assuming the person of a Jew, represents him as speaking to Jesus and reprehending him for many things. And in the first place he reproaches him with feigning that he was born of a virgin, and says that to his disgrace he was born in a Judaic village from a poor Jewess who obtained the means of subsistence by manual labor. He adds that she was abandoned by her husband, who was a carpenter, because she had been found by him to have committed adultery. Hence, in consequence of being expelled by her husband, becoming an ignominious vagabond, she was secretly delivered of Jesus, who, through poverty being obliged to serve as a hireling in Egypt, learnt there certain arts for which the Egyptians are famous. Afterwards, returning from thence, he thought so highly of himself on account of the possession of these magical arts as to proclaim himself to be a god. Celsus adds that the mother of Jesus became pregnant with him through a soldier whose name was Panthera. Quote, was therefore the mother of Jesus beautiful, and was God connected with her on account of her beauty, though he is not adapted to be in love with a corruptible body? Or is it not absurd to suppose that God would be enamoured of a woman who was neither fortunate nor of royal extraction, nor even scarcely known to her neighbours, and who was also hated and ejected by the carpenter her husband, so as neither to be saved by her own credulity nor by divine power? These things, therefore, do not at all pertain to the kingdom of God. End quote. Celsus, again, personifying a Jew, says to Christ, quote, 
when you were washed by John, you say that the spectre of a bird flew to you from the air. But what witness worthy of belief saw this spectre, or who heard a voice from heaven adopting you for a son of God except yourself, and some one of your associates who was equally a partaker of your wickedness and punishment? Jesus, having collected, as his associates, ten or eleven infamous men, consisting of the most wicked publicans and sailors, fled into different places, obtaining food with difficulty and in a disgraceful manner. End quote. Again, in the person of a Jew, Celsus says to Christ, quote, What occasion was there, while you were yet an infant, that you should be brought to Egypt, in order that you might not be slain? For it was not fit that a god should be afraid of death. But an angel came from heaven, ordering you and your associates to fly, lest being taken you should be put to death. For the great god, it seems, should not preserve you, his own son, in your own country, but sent two angels on your account. End quote. The same Jew in Celsus also adds, quote, Though we do not believe in the ancient fables which ascribe a divine origin to Perseus, Amphion, Aeacus, and Minos, yet at the same time their deeds are demonstrated to be mighty and admirable, and truly superhuman, in order that what is narrated of their origin may not appear to be improbable. End quote. But, speaking to Jesus, he says, quote, What beautiful or admirable thing have you said or done, though you was called upon in the temple to give some manifest sign that you were the Son of God? End quote. Celsus, pretending not to disbelieve in the miracles ascribed to Christ, says to him, quote, Let us grant that these things were performed by you, but they are common with the works of enchanters, who promise to effect more wonderful deeds than these, and also with what those who have been taught by the Egyptians to perform in the middle of the forum for a few obeli, such as expelling demons from men, dissipating diseases by a puff, evocating the souls of heroes, exhibiting sumptuous suppers, and tables covered with food which have no reality. These magicians also represent animals as moving, which are not in reality animals, but merely appear to the imagination to be such. Is it fit, therefore, that we should believe these men to be the sons of God because they worked these wonders? Or ought we not rather to say that these are the arts of depraved and unhappy men? End quote. Again, the Jew says, quote, It is but recently and, as it were, yesterday, since we punished Christ, and you who are, in no respect superior to keepers of oxen, have abandoned the laws of your ancestors and country. Why, likewise, do you begin from our sacred institutions, but afterwards, in the progress of your iniquity, despise them? For you have no other origin of your dogma than our law. Many other such persons, also as Jesus was, may be seen by those who wish to be deceived." How, too, is it probable that we, who have declared to all men that a person would be sent by God as a punisher of the unjust, should treat him ignominiously, if such a person had appeared among us? Again, how can we think him to be a God, who, that I may omit other things, performed, as we learn, nothing that was promised? And when, being condemned by us, he was thought worthy of punishment, having concealed himself and fled, was most disgracefully made a prisoner being betrayed by those whom he called his disciples. If, however, he was a god, it was not proper that he should either fly, 
or be led away captive and much less was it fit that being considered as a saviour and the son of the greatest god and also the messenger of this god by his familiars and private associates he should be deserted and betrayed by them but what excellent general who was the leader of many myriads of men was ever betrayed by his soldiers indeed this has not happened even to the chief of a band of robbers though a man depraved and the captain of men still more depraved than himself when to his associates he appeared to be useful but christ who was betrayed by those of whom he was the leader though not as a good commander nor in such a way as robbers would behave to their captain could not obtain the benevolence of his deluded followers many other things also and such as are true respecting jesus might be adduced though they are not committed to writing by his disciples but these i willingly omit his disciples also falsely pretended that he foreknew and foretold everything that happened to him Quote, the disciples of Jesus, not being able to adduce anything respecting him that was obviously manifest, falsely assert that he foreknew all things, and have written other things of a similar kind respecting him. This, however, is just the same as if someone should assert that a certain person is a just man, and notwithstanding this, should show that he acted unjustly, that he is a pious man, and yet a murderer, and though immortal, died at the same time adding to all these assertions that he had a foreknowledge of all things. End quote. Quote, these things Jesus said after he had previously declared that he was God, and it was entirely necessary that what he had predicted should take place. He therefore, though a God, induced his disciples and prophets, with whom he ate and drank, to become impious, it was however requisite that he should have been beneficial to all men and particularly to his associates no one likewise would think of betraying the man of whose table he had been a partaker but here the associate of the table of god became treacherous to him god himself which is still more absurd making those who had been hospitably entertained by him to be his impious betrayers End quote. The Jew in Celsus also says that, quote, What is asserted by the Jewish prophets may be much more properly adapted to ten thousand other persons than to Jesus. Besides, the prophets say that he who was to come would be a great and powerful king, and would be the lord of the whole earth, and of all nations and armies. But no one would infer from such like symbols and rumours, and from such ignoble arguments, that Christ is the Son of God. As the sun, which illuminates all other things, first shows himself to be the cause of light, thus also it is fit that this should have been done by the Son of God. But the Christians argue sophistically when they say that the Son of God is the Word itself, and the accusation is strengthened by this, that the Word which was announced by the Christians to be the Son of God was not a pure and holy Word, but a man who was most disgracefully punished and put to death. What illustrious deed did Jesus accomplish worthy of a God, who beholds from on high with contempt the trifling pursuits of men, and derides and considers as sport terrestrial events? Why, too, did not Jesus, if not before, yet now at least, i.e. when he was brought before Pilate, exhibit some divine indication respecting himself, liberate him from this ignominy, and punish those who had insulted both him and his father? What kind of ichor also or blood dropped from his crucified body? Was it, here there is a lacuna in the text, 
such as from the blessed immortals flow. End quote. The Jew in Celsus further adds, quote, Do you reproach us with this, O most faithful men, that we do not conceive Christ to be God, and that we do not accord with you in believing that he suffered these things for the benefit of mankind, in order that we also might despise punishment? Neither did he persuade any one while he lived, not even his own disciples, that he should be punished and suffer as he did, nor did he exhibit himself, though a god, as one liberated from all evils. Certainly you Christians will not say that Christ, when he found that he could not induce the inhabitants on the surface of the earth to believe in his doctrines, descended to the infernal regions in order that he might persuade those that dwelt there. But if in inventing absurd apologies by which you are ridiculously deceived, what should hinder others also who have perished miserably from being ranked among angels of a more divine order? End quote. The Jew in Celsus further observes on comparing Christ with robbers, quote, Some might in some similar manner unblushingly say of a robber and a homicide, who was punished for his crimes, that he was not a robber but a god, for he predicted to his associates that he should suffer what he did suffer. The disciples of Jesus living with him, hearing his voice and embracing his doctrines, when they saw that he was punished and put to death, neither died with nor for him nor could be persuaded to despise punishment, but denied that they were his disciples. Why, therefore, do not you Christians voluntarily die with your master? End quote. The Jew in Celsus also says that, quote, Jesus made converts of ten sailors and most abandoned publicans, but did not even persuade all these to embrace his doctrines. Is it not also absurd in the extreme that so many should believe in the doctrines of Christ now he is dead, though he was not able to persuade anyone genuinely while he was living? But the Christians will say, we believe Jesus to be the Son of God because he cured the lame and the blind and, as you assert, raised the dead. O light and truth, which clearly proclaims in its own words as you write that other men, and these depraved and enchanters, will come among you, possessing similar miraculous powers. Christ also feigns that a certain being, whom he denominates Satan, will be the source of these nefarious characters, so that Christ himself does not deny that these arts possess nothing divine, and acknowledges that they are the works of depraved men. At the same time, likewise, being compelled by truth, he discloses both the arts of others and his own. Is it not, therefore, a miserable thing to consider from the performance of the same deeds this man to be a god, but others to be nothing more than enchanters? For why, employing his testimony, should we rather think those other workers of miracles to be more depraved than himself? Indeed, Christ confesses that these arts are not indications of a divine nature, but of certain impostors and perfectly wicked characters. End quote. After this, the Jew in Celsus says to his fellow citizens who believed in Jesus as follows, quote, Let us grant you that Jesus predicted his resurrection. But how many others have employed such like prodigies? in order by a fabulous narration to effect what they wished, persuading stupid auditors to believe in these miracles. Zamolxus, among the Scythians, who was a slave of Pythagoras, used this artifice. Pythagoras, also himself in Italy, and in Egypt, Ramsonitis. For it is related of the latter that he played at dice with Ceres in Hades, and that he brought back with him as a gift from her a golden towel. 
Similar artifices were likewise employed by Orpheus among the Odrysians, by Protocilius among the Thessalians, and by Hercules and Theseus in Tenaris. This, however, is to be considered whether any one who in reality died ever rose again in the same body, unless you think that the narration of others are fables, but that your catastrophe of the drama will be found to be either elegant or probable, respecting what was said by him who expired on the cross, and the earthquake and the darkness, which then, according to you, ensued. To which may be added, that he who, when living, could not help himself, arose, as you say, after he was dead, and exhibited the marks of his punishment, and his hands, which had been perforated on the cross." But who was it that saw this? A furious woman, as you acknowledge, or some other of the same magical sect, or one who was under the delusion of dreams, or who voluntarily subjected himself to fallacious phantasms, a thing which happened to myriads of the human race? Or, which is more probable, those who pretended to see this were such as wished to astonish others by this prodigy, and, through a false narration of this kind, to give assistance to the frauds of other impostors. Is it to be believed that Christ, when he was alive, openly announced to all men what he was, but when it became requisite that he should procure a strong belief of his resurrection from the dead, he should only show himself secretly to one woman and to his associates? If also Christ wished to be concealed, why was a voice heard from heaven proclaiming him to be the Son of God? Or if he did not wish to be concealed, why did he suffer punishment, and why did he ignominiously die? End quote. The Jew in Celsus likewise adds, quote, These things, therefore, we have adduced to you from your own writings, than which we have employed no other testimony, for you yourselves are by them confuted. Besides, what God that ever appeared to men did not procure belief that he was a God, particularly when he appeared to those who expected his advent? Or why was he not acknowledged by those by whom he had been for a long time expected? We certainly hope for a resurrection in the body, and that we shall have eternal life. We also believe that the paradigm and primary leader of this will be he who is to be sent to us, and who will show that it is not impossible for God to raise anyone with his body that he pleases. End quote. After this, Celsus, in his own person, says, quote, The Christians and Jews most stupidly contend with each other, and this controversy of theirs about Christ differs in nothing from the proverb about the contention for the shadow of an ass. There is also nothing venerable in the investigation of the Jews and Christians with each other, both of them believing that there was a certain prophecy from a divine spirit that a saviour of the human race would appear on the earth, but disagreeing in their opinion whether he who was predicted had appeared or not. The Jews, originating from the Egyptians, deserted Egypt through sedition, at the same time despising the religion of the Egyptians. Hence the same thing happened to the Christians afterwards who abandoned the religion of the Jews as to the Jews who revolted from the Egyptians, for the cause to both of their innovation was a seditious opposition to the common and established rights of their country. The Christians at first, when they were few, had but one opinion, but when they became scattered through their multitude, they were again and again divided into sects, and each sect wished to have an establishment of its own for this was what they desired to effect from the beginning. But after they were widely dispersed, one sect opposed the other, 
nor did anything remain common to them except the name of Christians, and even this they were at the same time ashamed to leave as a common appellation. But as to other things, they were the ordinances of men of a different persuasion. What, however, is still more wonderful is this, that their doctrine may be easily confuted, as consisting of no hypothesis worthy of belief, but their dissension among themselves, the advantage they derive from it, and their dread of those who are not of their belief, give stability to their faith. The Christians ridicule the Egyptians, though they indicated many and by no means contemptible things through enigmas, when they taught that honours should be paid to eternal ideas, and not, as it appears to the vulgar, to diurnal animals. End quote. Celsus adds that, quote, the Christians stupidly introduced nothing more venerable than the goats and dogs of the Egyptians in their narrations respecting Jesus. What is said by a few who are considered as Christians concerning the doctrine of Jesus and the precepts of Christianity is not designed for the wiser, but for the more unlearned and ignorant part of mankind. For the following are their precepts. Let no one who is erudite accede to us, no one who is wise, no one who is prudent, for these things are thought by us to be evil. But let any one who is unlearned, who is stupid, who is an infant in understanding, boldly come to us. For the Christians openly acknowledge that such as these are worthy to be noticed by their God, manifesting by this that they alone wish and are able to persuade the ignoble, the insensate, slaves, stupid women, and little children, and fools. We may see in the forum infamous characters and jugglers collected together who dare not show their tricks to intelligent men, but when they perceive a lad and a crowd of slaves and stupid men, they endeavour to ingratiate themselves with such characters as these. We also may see in their own houses wool-weavers, shoemakers, fullers, and the most illiterate and rustic men, who dare not say anything in the presence of more elderly and wiser fathers of families, but when they meet with children apart from their parents, and certain stupid women with them, then they discuss something of a wonderful nature, such as that it is not proper to pay attention to parents and preceptors, but that they should be persuaded by them. For, say they, your parents and preceptors are delirious and stupid, and neither know what is truly good, nor are able to effect it, being prepossessed with trifles of an unusual nature. They add that they alone know how it is proper to live, and that if children are persuaded by them they will be blessed, and also the family to which they belong. At the same time, likewise, that they say this, if they see any one of the wiser teachers of erudition approaching, or the father of the child to whom they are speaking, such of them as are more cautious defer their discussion to another time. But those that are more audacious urge the children to shake off the reins of parental authority, whispering to them that when their fathers and preceptors are present, they neither wish nor are able to unfold to children what is good, as they are deterred by the folly and rusticity of these men who are entirely corrupted, are excessively depraved, and would punish them, their true admonishers. They further add that if they wish to be instructed by them, it is requisite that they should leave their parents and preceptors, and go with women and little children, who are their playfellows, to the conclave of women, or to the shoemaker's or fuller's shop, that they may obtain perfection by embracing their doctrines. That I do not, however, accuse the Christians more bitterly than truth compels, may be conjectured from hence, that the criers who call men to other mysteries proclaim as follows, Let him approach whose hands are pure, and whose words are wise. And again others proclaim, 
let him approach who is pure from all wickedness whose soul is not conscious of any evil and who leads a just and upright life and these things are proclaimed by those who promise a purification from error let us now hear who those are that are called to the christian mysteries whoever is a sinner whoever is unwise whoever is a fool and whoever in short is miserable him the kingdom of god will receive do you not therefore call a sinner an unjust man a thief a housebreaker a wizard one who is sacrilegious and a robber of sepulchres what other persons would the crier nominate who should call robbers together god according to the christians descended to men and as consequent to this it was fancied that he had left his own proper abode god however being unknown among men as the christians say and in consequence of this appearing to be in a condition inferior to that of a divine being who was not willing to be known and therefore made trial of those who believed and of those who did not believe in him just as men who have become recently rich call on god as a witness of their abundant and entirely mortal ambition the Christians have asserted nothing paradoxical or new concerning a deluge or a conflagration, but have perverted the doctrine of the Greeks and barbarians, that in long periods of time, and recursions and concursions of the stars, conflagrations and deluges take place, and also that after the last deluge, which was that of Deucalion, the period required, conformably to the mutation of holes, a conflagration, this the christians however have perverted by representing god as descending with fire as a spy again we will repeat and confirm by many arguments an assertion which has nothing in it novel but was formerly universally acknowledged god is good is beautiful and blessed and his very nature consists in that which is most beautiful and the best if therefore he descended to men his nature must necessarily be changed but the change must be from good to evil and from the beautiful to the base from felicity to infelicity and from that which is most excellent to that which is most worthless who however would choose to be thus changed besides to be changed and transformed pertains to that which is naturally mortal but an invariable sameness of subsistence is the prerogative of an immortal nature hence god could never receive a mutation of this kind either god is in reality changed as the christians say into a mortal body and we have before shown that this is impossible or he himself is not changed but he causes those who behold him to think that he is and thus falsifies himself and involves others in error deception however and falsehood are indeed otherwise evil and can only be properly employed by any one as a medicine either in curing friends that are diseased or have some vicious propensity or those that are insane or for the purpose of avoiding danger from enemies but no one who has vicious propensities or is insane is dear to divinity nor does god fear any one in order that by wandering he may escape danger the christians adding to the assertions of the jews say that the son of god came on account of the sins of the jews and that the jews punishing jesus and causing him to drink gall raised the bile of god against them End quote. Celsus, after this, in his usual way deriding both Jews and Christians, compares all of them to a multitude of bats, or to ants coming out of their holes, or to frogs seated about a marsh, or to earthworms that assemble in a corner of some muddy place, and contend with each other, which of them are most noxious. 
he likewise represents them as saying quote, god has manifested and predicted all things to us and deserting the whole world and the celestial circulation and likewise paying no attention to the widely extended earth he regards our concerns alone to us alone sends messengers and he will never cease to explore by what means we may always associate with him End quote. he likewise resembles us to earthworms acknowledging that god exists and he says that we earthworms i e the jews and christians being produced by God after him, are entirely similar to him. All things too are subject to us, earth and water, the air and the stars, and are ordained to be subservient to us. Afterwards these earthworms add, quote, Now because some of us have sinned, God will come, or he will send his Son, in order that he may burn the unjust, and that those who are not so may live eternally with him. End quote. And Celsus concludes with observing that, Quote, such assertions would be more tolerable if they were made by earthworms or frogs than by Jews or Christians contending with each other. End quote. Celsus, after having adduced from the writings of the heathens instances of those who contended for the antiquity of their race, such as the Athenians, Egyptians, Arcadians, and Phrygians, and also of those who have asserted that some among them were Aborigines, says that quote, the Jews being concealed in a corner of Palestine men perfectly inerudite and who never had previously heard the same things celebrated by hesiod and innumerable other divine men composed a most incredible and inelegant narration that a certain man was fashioned by the hands of god and was inspired by him with the breath of life that a woman was taken from the side of man that precepts were given to them by god and that a serpent was adverse to these precepts lastly they make the serpent to frustrate the commands of god in all this narrating a certain fable worthy only of being told by old women and which most impiously makes god to be from the first imbecile and incapable of persuading one man fashioned by himself to act in a way conformable to his will the christians are most impiously deceived and involved in error through the greatest ignorance of the meaning of divine enigmas for they make a certain being whom they call the devil and who in the hebrew tongue is denominated satan hostile to god it is therefore perfectly stupid and unholy to assert that the greatest god wishing to benefit mankind was incapable of accomplishing what he wished through having one that opposed him and acted contrary to his will the son of god therefore was vanquished by the devil and being punished by him teaches us also to despise the punishments inflicted by him christ at the same time predicting that satan would appear on the earth and like himself would exhibit great and admirable works usurping to himself the glory of god the son of god also adds that it is not fit to pay attention to satan because he is a seducer but that himself alone is worthy of belief this however is evidently the language of a man who is an impostor earnestly endeavouring to prevent and previously guarding himself against the attempts of those who think differently from and oppose him but according to the christians the son of god is punished by the devil who also punishes us in order that through this we may be exercised in endurance these assertions however are perfectly ridiculous for it is fit i think that the devil should be punished and not that men should be threatened with punishment who are calumniated by him further still if god like jupiter in the comedy being roused from a long sleep wished to liberate the human race from evils why did he send only into a corner of the earth this spirit of whom you boast though he ought in a similar manner to have animated many other bodies and to have sent them to every part of the habitable globe 
the comic poet indeed in order to excite the laughter of the audience in the theatre says that jupiter after he was roused from his sleep sent mercury to the athenians and lacedaemonians but do not you think that it is a much more ridiculous fiction to assert that god sent his son to the jews many and these men whose names are not known both in temples and out of temples and some also assembling in cities or armies are easily excited from any casual cause as if they possessed a prophetic power each of these likewise is readily accustomed to say i am god or the son of god or a divine spirit but i came because the world will soon be destroyed and you o men on account of your iniquities will perish i wish however to save you and you shall again see me returning with a celestial army blessed is he who now worships me but i will cast all those who do not into eternal fire together with the cities and regions to which they belong those men also that do not now know the punishments which are reserved for them shall afterwards repent and lament in vain but those who believe in me i will forever save extending to the multitude these insane and perfectly obscure assertions the meaning of which no intelligent man is able to discover for they are unintelligible and a mere nothing they afford an occasion to the stupid and to jugglers of giving to them whatever interpretation they please again they do not consider if the prophets of the god of the jews had predicted that this would be his son why did this god legislatively ordain through moses that the jews should enrich themselves and acquire power should fill the earth with their progeny and should slay and cut off the whole race of their enemies which moses did as he says in the sight of the jews and besides this threatening that unless they were obedient to these commands he should consider them as his enemies why after these things had been promulgated by god did a son a nazarene man exclude from any access to his father the rich and powerful the wise and renowned for he says that we ought to pay no more attention than ravens do to food and the necessities of life and that we should be less concerned about our clothing than the lilies of the field again he asserts that to him who smites us on one cheek we should likewise turn the other whether therefore does moses or jesus lie or was the father who sent jesus forgetful of what he had formerly said to moses or condemning his own laws did he alter his opinion and send a messenger to mankind with mandates of a contrary nature the christians again will say how can god be known unless he can be apprehended by sense to this we reply that such a question is not the interrogation of man nor of soul but of the flesh at the same time therefore let them hear if they are capable of hearing anything as being a miserable worthless race and lovers of body if closing the perceptive organs of sense you look upward with the visive power of intellect and averting the eye of the flesh you excite the eye of the soul you will thus alone behold god and if you seek for the leader of this path you must avoid impostors and enchanters and those who persuade you to pay attention to real idols in order that you may not be entirely ridiculous by blaspheming as idols other things which are manifestly gods or venerating that which is in reality more worthless than any image and which is not even an image but a dead body and by investigating a father similar to it there are essence and generation the intelligible and the visible and truth indeed subsists with essence but error with generation science therefore is conversant with truth but opinion with generation 
intelligence also pertains to or has the intelligible for its object but what is visible is the object of sight and intellect indeed knows the intelligible but the eye knows that which is visible what the sun therefore is in the visible region being neither the eye nor sight but the cause to the eye of seeing and to the sight of its visive power to all sensibles of their being generated and to himself of being perceived this the supreme god or the good is in intelligibles since he is neither intellect nor intelligence nor science but is the cause to intellect of intellectual perception to intelligence of its subsistence on account of him to science for its possession of knowledge for his sake and to all intelligibles for their existence as such he is likewise the cause to truth itself and to essence itself of their existence being himself beyond all intelligibles by a certain ineffable power and these are the assertions of men who possess intellect but if you understand anything of what is here said you are indebted to us for it if likewise you think that a certain spirit descending from god announced to you things of a divine nature this will be the spirit which proclaimed what i have above said and with which ancient men being replete have unfolded so many things of a most beneficial nature if therefore you are unable to understand these assertions be silent and conceal your ignorance and do not say that those are blind who see and that those are lame who run you at the same time possessing souls that are in every respect lame and mutilated and living in body viz in that which is dead how much better would it be for you since you are desirous of innovation to direct your attention to some one of the illustrious dead and concerning whom a divine fable may be properly admitted and if hercules and esculapius do not please you and other renowned men of great antiquity you may have orpheus a man confessedly inspired by a secret spirit and who suffered a violent death but he perhaps has been adopted as a leader formerly by others consider anaxarchus therefore who being thrown into a mortar and bruised in the cruelest manner most courageously despised the punishment exclaiming bruise bruise the sack of anaxarchus for you cannot bruise him this indeed was uttered by a certain truly divine spirit him however some physiologists have already vindicated to themselves in the next place consider epictetus who, when his master twisted his leg violently, said, smiling gently and without being terrified, You will break my leg. And when his master had broken his leg, only observed, Did I not tell you that you would break it? What thing of this kind did your God utter when he was punished? The Sibyl, likewise, whose verses are used by some of you, is far more worthy to be regarded by you as the daughter of God but now you have fraudulently and rashly inserted into her verses many things of a blasphemous nature and christ who in his life was most reprehensible and in his death most miserable you reverence as a god how much more appropriately might you have bestowed this honour on jonas when he was under the gourd or on daniel who was saved in the den of lions or on others of whom more prodigious things than these are narrated this is one of the precepts of the christians do not revenge yourself on him who injures you and if any person strikes you on one cheek turn the other to him also and this precept indeed is of very great antiquity but is recorded in a more rustic manner by christ for socrates is made by plato in the crito to speak as follows it is by no means therefore proper to do an injury by no means 
hence neither is it proper for him who is injured to revenge the injury as the multitude think it is since it is by no means fit to do an injury it does not appear that it is but what is it proper or not o crito to be malefic it certainly is not proper socrates is it therefore just or unjust for a man to be malefic to him by whom he has been hurt for in the opinion of the vulgar it is just it is by no means just for to be hurtful to men does not at all differ from injuring them you speak the truth neither therefore is it proper to revenge an injury nor to be hurtful to any man whatever evil we may suffer from him these things are asserted by plato who also adds consider therefore well whether you agree and are of the same opinion with me in this and we will begin with admitting that it is never right either to do an injury or revenge an injury on him who has acted badly towards us do you assent to this principle for formerly it appeared and now still appears to me to be true such therefore was the opinion of plato and which also was the doctrine of divine men prior to him concerning these however and other particulars which the christians have corrupted enough has been said for he who desires to search further into them may easily be satisfied but why is it requisite to enumerate how many things have been foretold with a divinely inspired voice partly by prophetesses and prophets and partly by other men and women under the influence of inspiration what wonderful things they have heard from the editor themselves how many things have been rendered manifest from victims and sacrifices to those who have used them how many from other prodigious symbols and to some persons divinely luminous appearances have been manifestly present of these things indeed the life of every one is full how many cities likewise have been raised from oracles and liberated from disease and pestilence and how many neglecting these or forgetting them have perished miserably how many colonies have been founded from these and by observing their mandates have been rendered happy how many potentates and private persons have from attending to or neglecting these obtained a better or worse condition how many lamenting their want of children have through these obtained the object of their wishes how many have escaped the anger of demons how many mutilated bodies have been healed and again how many have immediately suffered for insolent behaviour in sacred concerns some indeed becoming insane on the very spot others proclaiming their impious deeds but others not proclaiming them before they perished some destroying themselves and others becoming a prey to incurable diseases and sometimes a dreadful voice issuing from the editor has destroyed them in the next place is it not absurd that you should desire and hope for the resurrection of the body as if nothing was more excellent or more honourable to us than this and yet again that you should hurl this same body into punishments as a thing of vile nature to men however who are persuaded that this is true and who are conglutinated to body it is not worth while to speak of things of this kind for these are men who in other respects are rustic and impure without reason and labouring under the disease of sedition indeed those who hope that the soul or intellect will exist eternally whether they are willing to call it pneumatic or an intellectual spirit holy and blessed or a living soul or the super-celestial and incorruptible progeny of a divine and incorporeal nature or whatever other appellation they may think fit to give it those who thus hope but i say this in accordance with divinity in this respect think rightly that those who have lived well in this life will be blessed 
but that those who have been entirely unjust will be involved in endless evils, and neither the Christians nor any other man were ever hostile to this dogma. Since men are bound to body, whether they are so for the sake of the dispensation of the whole of things, or in order that they may suffer the punishment of their offences, or in consequence of the soul through certain passions becoming heavy and tending downwards, till through certain orderly periods it becomes purified. For according to Empedocles it is necessary that, from the blessed wandering thrice ten thousand times, through various mortal forms the soul should pass. This being the case, it is requisite to believe that men are committed to the care of certain inspective guardians of this prison, the body. That to the least of things, however, are allotted guardian powers may be learned from the Egyptians, who say that the human body is divided into 36 parts, and that demons, or certain ethereal gods, who are distributed into the same number of parts, are the guardians of these divisions of the body. Some also assert that there is a much greater number of these presiding powers, different corporeal parts being under the inspection of different powers. The names of these also in the vernacular tongues of the Egyptians are Knumen, Knachumen, Knat, Sikat, Biu, Eru, Eribu, Ramanor, Rianur. What, therefore, should prevent him from making use of these and other powers, who wishes rather to be well than to be ill, to be fortunate rather than to be unfortunate, and to be liberated from such tormentors and castigators as these things are thought to be? He, however, who invokes these powers ought to be careful, lest being conglutinated, as it were, to the worship of them and to a love of the body, he should turn from and become oblivious of more excellent natures." for it is perhaps requisite not to disbelieve in wise men who say that the greater part of circumterrestrial demons are conglutinated to generation and are delighted with blood with the odour and vapour of flesh with melodies and with other things of the like kind to which being bound they are unable to effect anything superior to the sanction of the body and the prediction of future events to men and cities whatever also pertains to mortal actions they know and are able to bring to pass if some one should command a worshipper of god either to act impiously or to say anything of a most disgraceful nature he is in no respect whatever to be obeyed but all trial and every kind of death are to be endured rather than to meditate and much more to assert anything impious concerning god but if any one should order us to celebrate the sun or Minerva, we ought most gladly to sing hymns to their praise, for thus you will appear to venerate the supreme God in a greater degree, if you also celebrate these powers, for piety, when it passes through all things, becomes more perfect. End of the Arguments of Celsus Against the Christians By Celsus